The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Maureen, what do you call a Supreme Court judge? This sounds like a joke. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, I'm, I'll bite. Whatever she likes, early in the morning. Beverly? <laughs> yeah, Beverly. In this case, you can also go with Justice McLaughlin or Madame Justice. Or if they're the Chief Justice, you go with the Right Honorable. How on earth do we justify having somebody who stands for truth and honor and justice as a woman of ill repute? Well, Beverly McLaughlin, she's uh, she's a character, and she wasn't born a judge. In fact, growing up on a ranch in Pincher Creek, Alberta, she was told, I think it was her grade 8 teacher, that her career prospects didn't look so hot. <laughs> and that she was, she was told she wasn't alert enough. Great reading skills, but not alert enough. But somehow she paid enough attention to get to university and then law school, where there were practically no women at the time. Yeah, well, she was dealing with rampant sexism, which, of course, as we know, has all been resolved. It's all gone now. now. Yeah, yeah, I think you tweeted that the Me Too movement, like, wrapped up everything. We anyway. did everything, yep. <laughs> she got lots of appointments, Supreme Court of British Columbia, the BC Court of Appeal, then the Supreme Court of Canada, and then, da 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 Chief Justice. She was like the first woman to serve in that position. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, I, I remember so well. Well... While she was on the Supreme Court, uh, Justice McLaughlin presided over landmark decisions regarding same-sex marriage, assisted death, and she also spoke out quite loudly and controversially about Canada's treatment of our Indigenous people. Yeah, so many big issues. It's uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about all of this. Of course, she had to retire at 75, but she's not really retired. So now she sits on the Court of Final Appeal in Hong Kong, which has been a little controversial. Uh, she wrote a memoir a few years ago called Truth Be Told. And she went on to be a bestseller and won all kinds of awards. And she's taken to writing legal thrillers, which are, they're also bestsellers. Of course kind of, they are. Yeah, of course big they deal. Are. She's met with kings and queens, presidents, and of course, prime ministers. Uh, she became a companion of the Order of Canada, and she almost had a bra named after her. A bra? Really? A bra, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there she is. Of all the honors. <laughs> I think I'd rather like have a bridge or a rock or like anything well, other than a bra. We have kind of weird ways of honoring our heroes. but And then there was the grade do. 8 teacher who basically said she would never amount to much. I, I want to hear a little bit more about that. A very warm and awestruck welcome to our guest this week, the Right Honorable Madam Justice Beverly McLaughlin. Hi, Beverly. Hi. Hello. It's nice. Can we to be call with you, you Bev? Yes, please. Is that okay? Yes. Okay. We're in, or we don't have to say former Right Honorable. No, just just call me Bev. <laughs> okay. Okay, we will. So you, I was amazed to read that you sort of, your first stripes, well, after being told that you never amount to anything as a woman, um, that you dreamed of being a writer, that you were a journalist, and you learned all kinds of things, and now you're still writing. Yeah, I think writing is what's carried me through life. I love writing. I've always loved words and books and ideas, and uh, writing is what's carried me through different iterations. I briefly tried journalism. When I was a lawyer, especially a young lawyer, but also later on on courts, writing was an essential part of our work. I mean, writing is an essential part of a lawyer's work. You have to write your briefs, you have to write your various documents, but you have to, and when you're a judge, you have to write judgments. And uh, that, they are uh, perhaps not literary works of writing, but they are 
important pieces of writing and you know have to know how to put them together and how to organize them and how to convey your thoughts through words. So wherever I've been, writing has been central, I think, to what I do. I wonder if being a novelist, which you are now, does this help you say anything that you would want to say about the law that you couldn't or wouldn't say as Chief Mm. Justice? Yeah, well, you can say it in different ways. I like in my novels to take on certain legal issues, but I'm able to take them on from not the point of view of a a jurist sitting high above, but I take them on from the point of view of the people they affect, and maybe the people who have different views about them. Like my second novel was about the right to assistance in dying, and and through different protagonists, I had one who thought this was an essential basic human right, but there was another protagonist, uh, the prosecutor, who said, no, this is the slippery slope to euthanasia, this is terrible, and and we cannot have this. So you're able to put forward different points of view, and you don't necessarily have to resolve them. When I was a judge, I have to resolve them. I'd say, okay, this is the right answer. But you don't in a novel. You can, and you, so your reader can explore the different points of view and make their own mind up. So why don't you just retire? I mean, <laughs> mandatory retirement yeah. at 75, and, and now you've got like five jobs. Like, yeah, I do a lot of aren't you Aren't you supposed to retire? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, as I said in my autobiography, I think retirement is a transitive verb. You go, you retire to something or from something. And so I still felt healthy and active and you know there's a lot of hours in the day and you've got to put things in them and life is about what you put in them and to me I do like things other than I like cooking I I enjoy walking in the woods I love my cottage those things are important but they weren't enough to fill all those hours in a day with things that I thought were meaningful so and interesting I mean you want to be interested in life, don't you? You want to have things that you're thinking about that that you care about. And you don't just want to suddenly become a spectator and wither away. I've, I've, so, so I kept doing things that were interesting. Yeah, I remember when you were uh, on the court, you were, well, when you were first appointed as Chief Justice, that you wrote that you'd seen the, the, the health, seen it sap their health of the people who had been there before you. And it was a pretty hard job. And yet, like we look at pictures of you when you were, when you were sworn in and when you retired, you looked like a million bucks. Like, are you like what? It's not the bra. <laughs> we should, we should explain. I think that's so hilarious that in order to honor you and other women that uh, in Canadian history, I think it right. was Simons that offered to name a bra after you. I think it was the Beverly Brulette. Yeah. Well, somebody, <laughs> somebody in their publicity department got the idea that this would be a great feminist advertisement. So they got people like Flora McDonald and a, a lot of other distinguished Canadians. I was the only one alive, so that was a distinction, <laughs> uh, unless they had forgotten. But anyway, they named a bra, they produced a bra and named it for, for each of these women. And uh, mine was a very diminutive uh, <laughs> uh, push-up, which, of course, you know, I'm not particularly endowed in that, those regions, so I, I took that as a compliment, of course. But uh, to really, when you think about it, it was pretty over the top. And I was in Europe, and I read about this, and or rather, a, a former law clerk, a wonderful lady named Katie Black, who now has her own practice in Ottawa, 
doing very well. She she emailed me and she said, "Are you aware of this?" And I said, "No." And I and I and the more I thought, at first I was going to laugh it off, and then I said, "No, this is really really serious." I mean, on a number of levels. First of all, you don't just get to use a person's name, a live person's name, to promote your products. <laughs> That's that's without their permission, and and but secondly, I was just sort of deeply offended that it, it might trivialize the yeah. the memory yeah. of all these wonderful women, me excluded. But you know, and no one was there to speak for them; they were dead yeah. and gone. And 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 the last note you know that comes out about them, if you look on social media, is that there's a bra name for them, and yeah. people laugh. That, that it yeah. can't be right. And it, they would never do it for a man, you know. No. Harry Elliott Trudeau jockey show. No. <laughs> I can't see it at all. And, and, and so I said to Katie, contact them and their lawyer and tell them that if they don't uh, do the right thing, uh, they're going to have a law action on their hands. So basically, I have to say, and this is where it's happy, Simons did the right thing. They realized that, that this was just egregious. And they wrote a letter of apology, which was printed in a lot of papers. They withdrew the, the line of bras. And, and uh, Mr. Simons himself insisted on phoning me personally to apologize, which I thought was wonder, wonderful of him. But part of the condition of, of this incipient litigation that I said I had threatened was that they would have to do something for the cause of women. So they put up a very, very generous gift to support uh, housing for women and, and children who were uh, without homes in Ottawa and uh, contributed a great deal to uh, a nice, a nice, nice, nice sum to, to, to an effort that was going on, which helped give, give women and children who would otherwise not have had homes a roof over their heads. So it all ended well. You write a lot about women. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, like I and Maureen, we're both sort of women of our times. And now there are other issues, thank goodness, that we're focusing on on things other than the horrible things that happened to women. But it was, was a big deal for you. Like there was that teacher that said, you're never going to make it. If you want to be a secretary, fine. But uh, even then, don't expect even to, be, to be much more. <laughs> Yeah, and and then all the way through, like becoming the first <clears throat> woman chief justice, and so on. You you just write so much about about women, and I'm just wondering, like, where are you now? Where where are we <laughs> now? Well, it's very interesting to watch how society has regarded women. I'm almost eighty now, so you know I've been watching since I was a little girl, right? And and watching different phases when I was. Very young women, it was a post-war era, and women were housewives and mothers with the occasional stint for some doing things like secretarial work, teaching, nursing, etc., which was always considered secondary, not a really real career, although some women made real careers of it. And they were very much disadvantaged in property. They were very much still in a, a hundred small ways considered almost chattels of their husbands or fathers before that. There was some sort of a dower right in property in Alberta where I grew up. But, you know, the man owned the property, the man made the decisions. And that was accepted as right and and proper. And I never could understand that. I just had a basic brain block. Couldn't get it. I just couldn't get it. And even when I was a little girl. And then, you know, we 
it was very much the same sort of attitude uh, as I was growing up in high school, but you did see more women who were doing interesting things gradually coming out of the woodwork, but still these constraints. And then there was, I got into law just before there was a big revolution in the mid-70s. You know, Betty Friedan, the, the feminine mystique and all of that said, what is wrong with a society that just assumes that 50 point something percent of it is always going to be at home looking after children? Why can't women explore their talents and desires and abilities in, in, in as many different ways as men can? And that was a revolutionary book at the time. It was the late sixties, early seventies. And it, and it, people read it and people were wrenched out of their complacence. And suddenly in the mid seventies, we saw many women, almost a third of the law schools were, uh, classes were made up of women. So women started really saying, I'm going to get education. I'm going to get into different jobs. I'm going to do things. So that was the, enabling enabling kind of uh, moment that really propelled me along and then we went through various other phases of feminist uh, development and there's you know all the stages of the feminist theory but in the most recent was the me too which i think was really really important because there had still despite all the advances made from betty friedan on been this culture of silence mm-hmm. you didn't mm. talk you didn't talk about certain things it was so deep. And, you know, and the culture of silence is really the culture of enslavement in sense. If you want to, if you want to keep a group down, you just don't let them talk. And so interesting, like Robin Doolittle, who writes for the Global Mail, just did this huge piece saying that, yes, there's been a lot of change, but women are still not making anywhere near the money that, yeah. that men are making. So it's, it's, it's still there. I mean, oh, yeah, we have a bravo to me too. <laughs> That's the new challenge, the final challenge. And will, will, will we ever get there? I don't know. But economic equity, uh, social equity, more or less, you can't see too many barriers, but economic equity, there are a lot of barriers still. And, uh, yeah. and they're subtle barriers. They're not like you can't do this and there, and it's written out in big red banners. It's just like you won't be chosen for promotion or you won't be asked to serve in a certain position or maybe because of society expects you to be the primary child caregiver, you won't be able to take on this other job. Uh, so social yeah. conditions and social assumptions are now holding women back. Will we ever get through that? Did, I don't know. I don't know, but we're, we're not through it yet. Did that teacher ever apologize? Did that grade eight teacher said you never make it? Did, did, was there ever any follow-up on that? <laughs> I don't know if she even remembered it a day later, but, but I do remember <laughs> going back to my little hometown and meeting a, a lovely teacher. I had thought of her as, as strict. She was my grade one teacher and I was terrified of her. But when I saw her, I realized she was just this lovely little old lady. <laughs> and, and she said, and you know, she did. She, my brothers and I were all very bright and, but we were just treated like everybody else and, no assumptions were made, but and sometimes ideas put down, etc. But she came to me and she said, I, "I I really have been thinking about this over the years. How we didn't realize how to treat 
bright kids in this little school that we had and mm. and and there was nothing for them and we just assumed everybody was somehow going to get through and get through in the same way and we didn't give you what you could have had to really really flourish like and and I never faulted my school because we had lots of time to read lots of time to daydream and especially in my high school years, they introduced us to a lot of different things, literature, science. Uh, it was it was it was a pretty good all round. Plus, we got everything we got from our community, which was about how you had to pitch in and work and get along with people. And, you know, that's really, really important, too. And what a community amounts to. The Women of Ill Repute. When you wrote uh, your memoir, Truth Be Told, which, you know, in Beverly McLaughlin style, went on to win awards, it wasn't just your average memoir, uh, you obviously had an opportunity to take the, you know, to step back and have a big scope on what you have accomplished. And I'm wondering, I mean, you you were instrumental, you presided over decisions about same-sex marriage and about euthanasia, but I, I wonder what, you, you know, looking back, what you think was perhaps the the most meaningful decision that you made as a as a as a judge as a justice. You know, I can't give you an answer to that. That's the honest truth because they're meaningful for you at one level. Are they a meaningful society? How's that question parsed out? Uh, but I can tell you that I really got invested in a indigenous issues. I mean, nowadays when people say the Supreme Court in my era didn't go far enough, but we went from zero to 75, let's say, and that's pretty good, and other courts are building on that now. And we were able to lay down uh, a basic structure, legal structure, within which Indigenous people could advance their claims, and that was hugely important. Was it perfect structure? Obviously, probably not, but... And it, but that's the beauty of the law. Things can be changed and tweaked. Uh, but it was extremely important to recognize those rights when nobody else was recognizing them. The parliament, legislatures, nothing. So in, in desperation, really, they turned to the courts and the courts recognized those rights and built up a legal structure in which they could be preserved and litigated. And that was so, so important. And that's, you know, as a sidelight, that's one of the beauties of a diverse democracy. You have different institutions through which people can work. The other, another area I thought was really important was the constitutional area. I've always loved constitutional law and charter law. And I was lucky enough to have the charter as my companion right through my judicial career. I first became a trial judge in 81 and the charter came in in 82. So there I was watching its total development until 2018 almost when I, when I stepped down very late in 17. And I'm just part of that. Can I just go back to what you were talking about in terms of Indigenous rights and and how basically when you were there, the court went from zero to 75. And reading your memoir, I mean, you talk about about there being, you know, Indigenous communities right nearby where you grew up and you could never understand why they were treated so differently. And and you say what took us so long? I mean, I, I know you say that you were taught that that Canadian history was all white Europeans and their descendants. And there's like, no, there's barely a mention of indigenous people. It, it was, you say it was like that. It was like that for me too, growing up. And I just, I don't know whether, <laughs> like, are we actually, 
are we getting somewhere? I mean, it's the same question I guess I yeah. asked about women, but no, I think I are think, you still sad for your society? <laughs> no, well, I, I think we are getting somewhere finally, and we are acknowledging our our total history. We could do better. You know, there are other problems with history, as as I was being taught it. It was all, I remember spending a whole year in Alberta, rural Alberta. And Alberta had a rich history of its own, learning about the St. Lawrence Seaway. Well, I'd never seen it, never expected (laughs) to see it, but that was what I had to learn. I think we need to make history uh, relevant to, to, to our society and teach what it is all about, including, and most importantly, going not blacking out whole areas like we did aeons and aeons of indigenous history and and so now we're realizing that and and i hope that our i know our schools are doing a lot better they almost every curriculum in every province has an indigenous component now this is so important we need to know it about each other we don't we we can't move ahead if we live in isolated segregated circles which was the case when i was going up with with indigenous people I was um, really struck by a part of your book where you you talked about your first husband, Rory, Mm -hmm. how he got mouth cancer and died and and he really suffered. And I and I think I think you're fairly clear that that was a big influence for you in the whole made process of like he wanted morphine and you were like, I'm a judge. I'm I can't I can't kill you. I can't murder you. But the law. So sometimes the law makes needs changing. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, can you, I, it's a very personal thing, obviously your, your first husband, but, but some people want to die and need help. Yeah. Dying is part of life and we're seeing people pay more attention to it now. It's not just like a footnote to life. It's part of life. And people, my observation is long to die with dignity. They, they don't have to necessarily control everything, but they want to die with a modicum of dignity and nobody likes suffering and nobody likes pain and dying in that state the it, it can be a very demeaning experience anyway all that to say there as we know is is a widespread movement now that that provided the circumstances are right and of course they have to be very narrow people should be allowed to choose how they how they die and avoid this suffering, avoid the indignity, and to go well. And you know, one of the things that judges and ex judges don't get fan mail, but I, more than almost any any other area I worked in, I, I run into people socially, or or some of them even send me letters. And and this has meant a lot to people who want to choose and avail themselves of assisted suicide. It meant a lot to family members and allowed people to have this liberty and control to the to in the final stages of their of their human existence uh, so it's touched a lot of lives and and I don't think it's being abused I haven't heard of any cases uh, of course that would be terrible I think it's 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 a profoundly important thing yeah, as well pondering this it's hard to move on from that but as a novelist now, now you're a lady novelist, <laughs> and uh, you have a protagonist. I wonder how much of you is in, uh, in is it Jilly Truitt? It's Jilly Truitt, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I tried to make her very different, and I was never doing that kind of law in that way. And uh, 
and I wasn't the kind of girl who had the kind of background she did. But so there's nothing direct. Uh, I tried to imagine my characters as more uh, from people I've known than my own. I don't write autofiction. That's for darn sure. And I don't think I ever will, unless you call my memoir that. But <laughs> I, I don't. Uh, I try. I, I've known so many interesting people in my life and met them through the courts and observed them here and there. And I just take pieces and I put them together. That's how, that's how I do it. That said, some of the attitudes obviously come from inside me. I mean, all this stuff comes from inside me and my memories. And uh, my protagonist has a, a certain aggressiveness. She's not going to take a second seat. She's not going to stand back if she sees something bad happen. I mean, maybe I had that, maybe not to the same degree. But And she also uh, has an empathy for those who are suffering and those who have suffered injustices. And she takes things on, and she gets passionate about it, and she gets them done. That was never my modus operandi, but I always admired people who did that kind of thing out there. So maybe in an extension of myself in some abstract way. (laughs) Are you, this is a very, very rude question, but uh, here goes. (laughs) What do you think of RBG, the notorious RBG? Like she became so famous. I think you met her. Well, I met and now there's all this controversy, like why didn't she step aside earlier and now look what's happened. Yeah. And anyway, I just I just wonder, are you could you ever be jealous of, of RBG? No, 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 I'm not. I'm not. But yeah, she did achieve icon status and and that's wonderful. She deserved it. And she was always very modest with it. I don't think she sought it out much or tried to overplay it, but she was just a truly uh, dignified and uh, uh, exemplary person who who cared very deeply about about the the law and the position of women in the uh, law. Uh, now, the only time I was briefly jealous, some uh, a woman I know, a law professor, wrote a book about RBG, and uh, she said, "Oh, I've included you in it. This was just a few months ago. I'm going to send you a copy." So I waited for the copy. And I looked at, went to the index, and I looked at the page where I was included in it. And it said, the Chief Justice of Canada and RBG were invited to a dinner. Of course, nobody paid any attention to the Chief Justice of Canada. It was all about RBG. And I thought, well, you know, you could have spared me that. I didn't remember that evening as being quite so totally dominated by RBG. But I loved her, and I met her on many occasions. And and uh, she was a wonderful woman. You just need to be more notorious. <laughs> yeah, well, I yeah. don't. I don't well, know. <laughs> I, 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 maybe I've stifled that. I mean, one one fellow started putting out at the about the time I retired. But now I'm I, I'm no longer very interesting to people. But the uh, he was going to do a lot of T-shirts, and I just said I wrote him and said, "Don't do this, please. You don't have my permission." I just didn't want to. <laughs> but a brawlet, you could do a brawlet. Walk down the street and see and see yourself. <laughs> In a, in uh, on on somebody's back, uh, and I, and what are you doing? You know, are you really promoting justice at that point? I'm yeah. I'm not suggesting that RBG's fame was anything she manufactured or wanted, but if it, it, that that kind of pop culture thing never appealed to me uh, greatly, uh, so uh, I'm not sure it really promotes the idea of justice so much as the individual, which 
uh, individuals in justice, people like me who worked in it all my life, were just very small pieces of a very large institution. Well, in terms of pop culture, your latest book is Denial, and it is a novel, and it is a rip-snorter of a page-turner. And I mean, is there anything you can't do? I guess we could end with that. Is there anything that you wish you could do that you can't do? Like be a ballet dancer oh, or something. I'd love to be a ballet dancer. I would have loved to have been a, a, a wonderful musician. But those are things I can't, I can't do. And, and they're just the beginning of a list a million things long because I've always looked at things and oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to do that? But yeah. there are limits. I've pushed mine, but oh, I, <laughs> there well, are very I, definite limits. <laughs> you're still pushing them. And I know we have that conversation a lot about running out of runway, but I still think you have a lot ahead of you. And, uh, and it's been a pleasure talking to you, Madam Justice. Thank you. It's been lovely to Bev. talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lovely. That's one of the best parts of these podcasts is uh, you sort of get to meet people that you'd never meet in real life. So, and and to have more than yeah. a three minute conversation, which is what I used to have on the news. Well, I so never it's, thought it's I'd been meet lovely. Wendy and Maureen. So <laughs> there you are. You made my day. Oh well, thank you so much. Yeah. Well. I was in Ottawa when you arrived. It was it was a pretty heady time with you know the the the, the brand new charter and uh, all of the dying with dignity stuff and the same sex marriage. There was a lot of stuff, and you were there yeah. for all of it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, P- well for that part of it anyway. Yeah. It's been lovely to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Thank you, Bev. Thanks so much. Bye. <laughs> Well, there she goes. Probably the most accomplished person we'll ever meet. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get to ask her about that. But I mean, she goes into detail about memories when she was two years old. I mean, I can barely remember being four, let alone two. So there are some people who are gifted who go on forever and never yeah. retire, it seems, which is uh, but, interesting. But this, this, is, this brings this whole uh, conversation into why should anybody retire? Yeah. Why? Yeah, yeah. I well, mean, if and you're she tired says, or you want to do other things or you're no longer interested in what you're doing, sure, that's fine. I get that. But if you're contributing, and God knows she is, why would that discussion even? And it's funny, we have this conversation, we had it with Marilyn Dennis, with, you know, what what is this thing where, okay, you've had a good run, you should step away now? <laughs> yeah, just you're done. You're, you're 60, you're 70, you're 80, yeah. so you're all done. Uh, well, and some people aren't done. It was, it was fascinating, because she talked a lot in her memoir, and we didn't talk about it uh, in our chat with her, but about her son, and about... It's it's hard to be a woman who accomplishes. It's like the Marie Hennon saying, you know, you you've got to have a supportive husband. You've got to have a system. You if you want, you can't have everything, and something's going to hurt. And 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 she said in her book that there's no such thing as perfection, and that her her son ultimately figured it out. Like I'm sure that there were moments that were difficult, as there are in all child rearing and parental uh, relationships. But uh, she pushed ahead, and she 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 did a lot, and she's still doing a lot. She's I still doing remember. a lot. I didn't read the thrill. Though. Do you think? Do you think she figured it out? Read the thriller. <laughs> I read the memoir. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just trying to be honest. No, I didn't read the okay, thriller, but I can hear you. <laughs> but, but I think it's okay. Yeah. You know, I did read her memoir. I find I find what she did was was so important. I'm just not a no. A you're not. Person. You're not. You're not a big. You're not a big detective fiction person. I know that. <laughs> I know. But I did. So she was great. She, she was she's great. Uh, she's contributed so much. So except right. for the bra. <laughs> lovely to talk to you lovely we'll talk to bras talk next to you. time okay <laughs> bye 
Women of Ill Repute was written and produced by Maureen Holloway and Wendy Mesley with the help from the team at the Sound Off Media Company and producer Yet Belgraver. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's blasttheradio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.